0: Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Fassini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam is in the building. We're going to dive deep onto a couple of topics that are really fun. We're going to talk about some young players in the NBA by doing our mid-season Rookie of the Year Top 5. That's going to be kind of a full season look at things while also acknowledging that... Certain players are playing better than certain other players right now. There could be some room for growth, and we'll talk about that throughout the course of our conversation there. But we're going to start with something fun that came to my mind on Friday night, my time, Thursday night, your time, where I, late last week, you know, I've been working through the draft guide and was doing a lot of Scoot Henderson deep dives now that he has played a substantial amount of time on the court this season. And I I continue to just come away completely blown away with scoot Henderson. I've seen some conversation from people bringing up, oh, you know, maybe Amen Thompson is number two, maybe Brandon Miller is number two. Um, and, and like for instance, like I, I, I this is not me calling out like Raphael Barlow, who I think has like been like kind of a person who did a video on that with Brandon Miller particularly. I think Raphael like should absolutely be continuing to bring up these conversations in the same way that I'm about to, because I'm about to kind of go the opposite way on this and discuss Scoot Henderson in a way that I think is worth interrogating and is worth at least investigating at the very least. So what we're going to talk about here is Scoot Henderson actually has like a genuine case at number one, because I have him in the same tier as Victor Wembanyama. I have him as maybe the best guard I've ever evaluated. And I kind of just want to dive into that a little bit more, and given how important perimeter play is in today's NBA, discuss is there actually like something worth looking into here? Uh, so spins—that's a big introduction. That's a—it's a lot of a lot of things we're going to dive into today. At the end of the show, as I announced on Twitter, and if you want to leave comments on the YouTube channel as well, please ask questions. We will answer them at the end of the show. We are going to do a little mini mailbag at the end. But Spins, what's going on, buddy?
1: Hey, Sam. Always good to see you. Uh, I agree. A really relevant (laughs) and fun conversation here with Scoot. Uh, You know, Nothing in January should be seen as a foregone conclusion when it comes to where the draft is going to shake out six months from now, five months from now, however long it is. And part of the reason that it's not a foregone conclusion is because there are some really intriguing players who go through peaks and valleys of their season. They have high points, they have have low points and start to go on hot streaks or cold streaks. And yeah. what we've seen out of Scoot Henderson is a, a pretty miraculous level of consistency in what he brings when he comes to the table. And that allows him to kind of hover, in my opinion, above maybe some of the other guys who show really tantalizing flashes and be in that conversation of, wait a second, if this is what he does every night, how elite of a guard prospect is he? And and that's why I'm glad we're diving into that today.
0: Yeah. So let's just jump in and start there. So like I said at the top here, I I do believe that Scoot Henderson is the best guard prospect I've evaluated. I've been doing this for eight years now, something like that, Uh, professionally, let's say for eight years. And as good as John Morant was, as good as Markel Fultz was, uh, as good as some of these other guys, Lonzo Ball, uh, Anthony Edwards, LaMelo Ball, who, who else comes to mind for you in this conversation? I, I mean, you know, I don't m- know. If, maybe over the last decade.
1: Yeah, I don't know if Cade Cunningham is necessarily a guard. Like he and Luca have a little bit different of a physical profile yeah. because they're bigger, that it's kind of hard to have that apples to apples comparison. But I mean, I think those are the the main guys that you would have there. Like, I don't know how high you were on D'Angelo Russell coming out all those years ago, but you know, he was pretty highly touted coming out of college.
0: Yeah, so I, I am kind of throwing out in this conversation the Cade Cunningham, Luka Doncic, like bigger initiator types because I do think Scoot is a little bit different than those guys in a very real way, and I think that it's – it's worth that conversation. Like, I'll be honest with you. I would have scoot ahead of Cade Cunningham on my own personal board. If I was, you know, having to rank them. And at some point I probably will do that. Either we'll do it on this podcast or I'll do it over on the athletic. I probably will do it over on the athletic, to be honest. So it'll give me a little bit more, um, you know, just stuff to do over there. Um, Not that I don't have enough to do already. <laughs> I but I-, I do think that it's worth just interrogating what all of that, means and why he is the best guard prospect I've seen. So it's just that he's kind of the complete package. Uh, Scoot Henderson is 6'2 with very long arms. And the other thing that just like immediately stands out physically with Scoot, if you, yeah, I was going to say, if you look at the thumbnail on this YouTube video, I picked that specifically for a reason. You can actually see how big his hands are. On the basketball he has complete and utter control over the basketball at all times because his hands are absolutely enormous uh that helps him in terms of just being able to handle the ball at an exceptionally high level the other thing is that like he is so explosive he plays with real force real strength but he has a lightning quick first step once he gets up he has real vertical pop off of one foot he has vertical pop off of two feet But because he has that pop off of one foot, he beats rim protectors to the spot, right? Like he gets off the ground forcefully. And because he gets off the ground forcefully, he has real contact balance. Like if guys bump him in the air, yeah, like he might move a little bit, but he's not moving much and he keeps that center of gravity at a really, really high level. He has that hang time, maybe not quite the hang time that John Morant has, right? but he has that hang time to be able to kind of float in the air and change the angle on rim protectors in a really, really impressive way. Uh, In terms of everything he can do on offense, let's say from a scheme perspective. So he's going to drive transition play at a really, really high level. He's an aggressive rebounder. He's going to grab and go Uh, uses. I think extremely long strides really, really well He uses those powerful like, you know, length, lengthy strides. He doesn't always have to long stride, but when he does, when he really tries to extend it out, it's really hard to kind of actually stay in front of him given how quick that first step is. So he's covering ground explosively with that quick first step and also just covering it like in swaths because of how long those strides are, despite the fact that he's only six foot two. Uh, If you give him that little bit of space to get downhill, it's just kind of over, right? Uh, you have to get your chest in front of him. And if you don't, he's just going through you. Like he doesn't care if you're going to rake down over his hands, doesn't care if like, you know, your shoulder might be in the way. He's just going to blow through you. He's too strong. He's too powerful. Um, he can do everything at full speed, but doesn't have to do everything at full speed is the thing that like really stands out, right? Uh, that level of, control over what's happening, I think does come back to how big his hands are and how creative he is as a ball handler. Uh You know, he can like Euro step at full speed or he can deceleration step into that Euro step and maintain that balance as a finisher. Um, he can change pace to let a defender go by, or he can just like Euro step around someone. Right. Uh He just knows, he knows when to throw the change up. Right. So yeah. all of this kind of leads to Scoot Henderson just being an absolute walking paint touch. Like we've talked about Amen Thompson in that way throughout this draft cycle. And Amen Thompson, I think, is like unequivocally the definition of a walking paint touch, right? Because he's so explosive. Scoot's better at it because, as we'll get to in a second, Scoot is more polished. He is more, uh, he plays with a better sense of balance. He has a yeah. center of gravity. Like he has his legs underneath the center of gravity. He's completely in control of everything that's happening at all times. Uh, Adam, I've now talked for like four <laughs> minutes, so I'll let you come in. Uh, anything physically on Scoot Henderson that you think I've missed here, uh, or like something you want to really accentuate? within this conversation.
1: So there's a couple things there, Sam, and I think you you summed up a lot of his strengths really well. I think his his last step quickness is something that Mm. I want to hit on here. The ability to, as you mentioned, whether it's one foot or two foot, be able to finish at the rim through contact over rim protection. He knows when to go up into somebody or over them, but he also has the maneuverability to change his direction at the last moment. And that's very, very strongly related to kind of deceleration traits to, you know, this term of wiggle or bend things we talk about with athletes and how they move their legs and their hips and can play balanced off of one foot or two feet. And like so strongly related to his last step quickness and how he maneuvers around the basket comes, you know, I think the fact that he can play at more than one speed. And I think of, you know, this is a a lazy analogy in some regard. Driving to the bucket is very similar to driving a car. The more speeds that you can shift your gears into, whether it's first gear, second gear, fifth gear, sixth gear, the more dangerous you are because defenses don't know what speed, what pace to expect when you come at them with the basketball. And with a guy like Amen Thompson, you know, a Jaden Ivey, who have this blistering top rate speed when they put their pedal to the floor and they just really gun it. That's great, but they don't really have all of the different speeds to be able to slow down to and play at beneath that. It's either a hundred miles an hour or they're going at kind of 50, 60% speed. Yeah, And Scoot seems to have many different variations of how blazingly fast he can go, how he's kind of going at 75 or 85% speed and he's in control amongst all of them. So That's what stands out to me. It's just he seems to always know when he comes off ball screen, when he's attacking downhill in transition, what speed he should be playing at.
0: I think that's absolutely right. So, like, now let's get to, like, the technical stuff, right? So, like, his handle is unbelievable, I think. Like, we're talking, like, can string together multiple moves off of, like, crossovers, between the leg dribbles, hesitations. Um, You know, there there is some, like, preordaining that he does when he's, like, trying to decide to get to, like, the mid-range, you know, floater, I think, at times. Sometimes he, we'll, we'll talk about, like, settling, I think, a little bit too often, which I think is something Scoop does just like 10% more often than what I'd like to see. But the handle itself is not actually preordained. I don't think he actually, I think reads and reacts really well to the angles and the point of attack kind of, you know, essentially angles and rhythms that that defender is presenting him Uh, on top of it. His technique out of ball screens, I think, is absolutely superb. Like his footwork, as I kind of mentioned, like that center of gravity is just always completely underneath him and it allows him to get to that lightning quick first step immediately uh, or it allows him to kind of change pace. Again, this is a guy that's like six foot two, 190 pounds. And if he wants to like take that deceleration, like stop pound dribble and get a guy like on his back or get a guy like kind of on his hip he can just like keep them in jail like very, very easily. And someone who is bigger than him as well, because he has that comfort level with his handle uh, to be able to change directions. Like he can snake ball screens really easily. There's just a lot of different, he can either like patiently probe or he can explode to the basket and Euro step. And like he loves that little inside hand finish on the opposite side of the rim. This is all stuff that is just going to be really, really impactful for him uh, he just creates angles really, really well. Yep. And that's why to me, like when I watch him out of ball screens, like he, he's ahead of most of the best guards I've evaluated. Like the, the one guy that I think you can make a case is like just a ball screen player that he is, you know, I, I think John Morant had just like incredible feel out of ball screens. Right. I don't think he is quite, I I think that Scoot has more skills in terms of like technical ball handling ability in terms of we'll get to like the mid range game. We'll get to some of the shooting stuff. Ja has like a slightly better first step. And I think he's a better playmaker and passer and distributor than scoot is at this point. But we're going to talk about that in a second as well. I think scoot's really, really good in that end. I think that like, that's the kind of level though, that scoot is on coming out of ball screens. Like he reads what defenders are doing exceptionally well in those circumstances let's get to kind of you know let's get to the passing before we get to the scoring because i think that both are interesting in the way that they kind of bear it bear out each other basically um i think he's a way underrated passer do you agree with
1: that way underrated completely i think
0: he's awesome i think he's like a really real he's not quite john averaging you know 11 assists a game at murray state and like throwing some of the crazy passes you'll craziest passes you'll ever see but i think he's like just i think he's a level below Ja in terms of passing uh not like there's probably like the Ja morant trey young level in terms of like pick and roll distribution just being guys that can average 10 assists a game in the nba and just be like unbelievable right i do think that Scoot is that level below, but we'll talk about why I like him a little bit more than some of those guys in a minute here as a scorer. Um hits those like cross corner skip passes with ease, one-handed, both hands, can throw the left-handed whip pass, can throw the right-handed whip pass. Um, I think he's kind of become an underrated interior passer. Uh, really good at finding just little angles to throw little like shovel passes and little dump off passes to either his roller or the man in the dunker spot. I think he could like stand to improve a little bit as like a pocket passer. Although that has come a little bit to me, it feels like when he pocket passes, it's not just like that one handed. Like I always think of Kyrie when I think of like the one handed, like pocket pass for some reason, because I think it's so aesthetically pleasing when he does it Um, with scoot. It does feel like pocket passing. He does like tend to throw it with two hands and like kind of gather a little bit more. Uh, and I think that like that will come like he has the dexterity coordination, fluidity and like the hand size to be able to throw one handed pocket passes just doesn't feel super comfortable right now. But Like I think he's going to average seven assists a game in the NBA like pretty easily, if not more.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And again, I don't want to get too far ahead of us here. I'll talk about kind of the the mid range game opening up everything for him when we get to that segment there. But I do think it's it's worth bringing up here in this passing uh, you know, conversation because the way that he's going to be played uh, against ball screens, you know, if you show with the level, if you high hedge on things, I think that I, I, I want to hit pause on that because, so.
0: yeah, that's that's where I want to like kind of finish with in terms sure. of like how you defend him because I think it's yep. going to be really really hard. Um, yep. the other thing, he's just a really high level decision maker, right? Super super high level decision maker makes the right reads constantly. He will throw the flare pass, but he keeps it simple as much as he can, right? That's like real decision-making that's going to translate immediately to the NBA. Like if someone is just like open on the wing, he's just going to make that reversal. Like he's just like good with that. He's not trying to like make it all happen on his own. He is an unselfish distributor in that way. Um, the scoring now. Obviously going to be a very, very high level scorer at the rim. Uh, Just has, as we kind of talked about already, has that ability to change angles on rim protectors, both before he leaps, such as like Euro stepping on the ground and finding different uh, angles to get around and underneath rim protectors hands. He also just beats rim protectors to the spot with his explosiveness a decent amount of the time. Like if a guy is rotating over from the weak side, he might just beat him there and like dunk all over him like he did in that game against the Pelicans G League team. Uh, loves the kind of, you know, driving from the right side of the court with his right hand Euro step into the inside hand finish. Uh, one of his favorite things that you will see or one of the, his favorite moves basically, or if he's on the left side of the court, he might just try and beat them there and finish with the inside hand again. I'm not saying you can't finish with the left hand. Maybe I would like to see like a touch more from the left hand with Scoot. But again, that's just like the nitpickiest thing that you can possibly imagine when doing this, right? Uh, You mentioned the mid-range game. I love him as a mid-range pull-up shooter. I think he's like a genuine weapon. Like if you go, you know, underneath a ball screen on him and you're in drop, he is going to, if you let him get to the elbow, he's going to stop and pop. And if you don't get a contest, he is going to make that shot. I feel very confident in him as a mid-range pull-up shooter right now, just as I did last year. Like we talked about this, you know, a couple times, I think throughout the year. I think he's a way underrated mid-range pull-up shooter. And because of that, I think that he's just all of this combination of skills, right? The ability to finish at the rim, the ability to get to the mid-range and pull up, the ability to drive transition play and get early offense that way, um, the passing ability the ability to separate from his man either out of ball screens or out of isolation because his handle is so tight and because he can change direction and change pace so easily. It's really hard to guard him. Yeah. And he's 19 right now. Like, he is an exceptionally difficult guard right now. Like, in terms of, like, trying to come up with a scheme that works against him, you basically, right now, you are just going under and letting him shoot that mid-range. And the one thing that I alluded to a minute ago, and, you know, we kind of talked about here briefly, is that he does settle in the mid-range a little bit too often. Here's my hypothesis on that. So he's only averaging, like, three and a half free throws per game, which is just, like, way too low for someone that is this explosive, this athletic. Do you think he's, like, kind of trying to prove to people he can shoot? Because when he wants to get to the rim, he just gets all the way there. Like, it's not really a problem for him. I kind of wonder if he's just like, yeah, I can do that whenever. People question that I can't shoot. Maybe we just, like, prove to people I can shoot. And then we just, like, put this to bed right now, right?
1: It's, it's funny. I, I think there might be an element of that, but I, I think he's such a good mid-range shooter, and he's aware of the elements of the rest of his game that become opened up by being a threat in those areas. So yeah. when you are a high-level pick-and-roll player and the ball's in your hands a ton, the first ability, the first thought process you have when you're coming off a screen is to try to take or create space. Based on what the defense is giving you. And if they show two at the level or there's two aggressive defenders for you, then the space is for somebody else. You just have to throw a pass and make sure that your teammates take advantage of that. But in areas when it's his turn to come off of the screen, dribble it and create that space, you'd mentioned hostage dribbles and snaking and all of these things that he's already really proficient at for a young player. Now he gets into space, and what's he going to do with it? He's engaging a second defender once he gets there, usually a big man who tends to be a little bit more in maybe drop coverage or or just is a little bit farther back closer to the basket. And with the space that he takes, he's trying to prove that he is a lethal mid-range shooter, that big men cannot sag off that way and dare him to knock down 15-foot elbow jumpers when he's able to get there in rhythm. He's got great hips his feet are aligned, he knows how to raise up off the bounce going to his left or to his right and knock down those shots. And I think the pocket passes, the dump downs, those shovels and traffic that we see, as well as maybe a little bit more hesitation to get to the rim, is only going to be possible for him at the next level if opposing defenses fear that mid-range just as much as they fear him getting to the rim and maybe that's a long-term cat and mouse game that he's playing right now. I don't know. I think teams are always going to want to give up the mid-range jumper as opposed to something at the rim. But if he can become almost, not not all the way cuz I think he's transcending at it, almost like a Chris Paul level mid-range pull-up shooter, that does so much more for his ability to pick apart a defense as a passer and his overall IQ. So, you know, the first step coming off of the screen is creating space, getting into space and understanding what that's going to do to the help defense around you. And again, more rim attempts would be nice from Scoot in that area, but I believe in the mid-range jumper so much that I think as soon as he breaks through that first line, he's going to have a ton of different ways to make a positive play for his team. He can shoot it, he can drive it, or he can dump it off to somebody else and they'll, they'll get a shot out of it.
0: And I think that that addition of the mid-range jumper already being there Is kind of what separates him from someone like Ja Morant. Ja Morant had the floater coming out of Murray State, but I think that like Scoot also has the floater. It's not nearly as developed as Ja's was coming out of Murray State. It seems like he's still kind of experimenting with it as much as anything, but he has that pull up game, uh, which I think is going to be really valuable come playoff time. Because if we, as we've seen like occasionally, like teams can right now, scheme jaw like i talked about this on the last podcast with schindler like that's kind of the swing skill for the grizzlies like if Jaw can just stop pull up from three behind a ball screen so teams can't go under as confidently that's where i think they change into a team that will win a title at some point uh with scoot scoot's jumper is just more mature already uh i think the touch is a little bit better he's making threes i believe it do you have the number i think it's like thirty-four right now from three
1: it's dipped a lot over the last couple weeks yeah yeah it's 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 in the mid-30s right now
0: yeah which big improvement from last year obviously uh when he shot i think like 24 percent from three it's all it all feels confident and comfortable it's not his first option right now to pull up from three and i do feel like in the gather and load it takes him like a little bit more energy and like a little bit more like power to like try and power up from three it's like he's like You know, like in a video game, when you hold like, you know, the R button to try and load up a little bit longer and then you fire, right? Because you're trying to, you know, increase the power on it. The thing with Scoot is like, he's going to get stronger. Like he's, we talked about like the strength and the power already and like the contact balance and all that. He's going to get stronger and like, that's going to become a more comfortable, confident shot for him over time. Like by the time he's 24, I think he's going to shoot pull up threes. That's where I'm at at this point. I know that the evidence is increasing. It's not a hundred percent there yet. Right. But if if you want to make a case against it, like I'm, I understand that. You know what I mean? Like where do you fall in his pull up three point shooting at this point?
1: I am, uh, I'm much more in on it than I was a year ago. I think that he's, he's put in the, the reps to at least show comfort in taking it. And look, I, This is nowhere near the same level of shooter, but it's the same mentality that I'm seeing right now. About a decade ago, maybe almost 15 years ago, because I guess it is 2023, Like Rajon Rondo with the Boston Celtics was an unbelievable passer, but everyone knew to go under ball screens with him. And I think that there was once or twice a game when Rondo would use a possession to just take that pull-up jumper, to try to keep defenses honest, to see if he could get himself into a rhythm and if it wasn't going in and he knew defenses would keep going under, okay, no problem. I'm not going to do that again. I think there's an element that Scoot needs to have with that for the rest of the season and in particular early in his NBA career of like once a game, he should just spend a possession coming down and saying, this is the one when they give me space, I'm going to pull it and see if I can get them to change their yeah. coverage or get myself in a rhythm.
0: And honestly, I think he does that now. Like that's the other thing with Scoot. Like, with the passing, we didn't really talk about this, but like he actually knows how to already like manipulate help side defenders. Like if he sees a guy on the weak side, who's like probably the guy that's going to have to rotate as the low man to come over and help him at the rim. He knows exactly how to engage that guy just enough to open up the passing angle in order to create that uh, open kick out for a wide open three. He knows how to manipulate like the drop cover defender in pick and roll in order to bring him and make him step forward onto him and then hit the wraparound pass, like right around him, essentially. He's really, really impressive. I, I think that this is just kind of what I come down to. Like, it's going to be really hard to guard him. So I don't really. So like, I like I said, like right now you just go under and you let him shoot the 16 footer. Right. I don't think you're going to be able to do that forever, though. Uh, If you try and put two on the ball, he's going to diagnose and figure out where the open man is. If you try to just switch, I mean, God, you have to have Bam Adebayo to be able to switch. That's it. That's the only option that I think could switch onto him as a big, right? Uh, He is so, so good and so fast. He's going to blow by guys like, if you switch like Walker Kessler out onto him, a guy that we're going to talk about in a minute, who I think has been unbelievable defensively this season, or if he just strings out Kessler uh, into an Island and like isolates him, those guys just like, don't really have a chance. He's too explosive. It's it's, it is very similar to like a Derek Rose, John Morant kind of thing out there. Uh,
1: Well, and and Sam, you had mentioned earlier, not wanting to see him settle for as many mid range jumpers. Like, Some of those need to turn into more rim attempts, but I think some of them need to turn into he comes off of a screen, he snakes, he's got a guard on his back or who's hung up on the screen. Now the big has to come to him and he hesitates and keeps his dribble alive and then drags that out into a switch because then I think that's how he's going to continue to get engaging, you know, other help defenders who have to fire and come to the basket and makes the right decisions or kind of finishes over them is speeding away those rim protectors and sucking them away from the basket, not with his shooting ability, but with creating a switch backing it out to get them in space and then getting downhill to attack them.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the two things that I think we should talk about, I'm not as worried about the shooting as I am. I just would like to see him put more pressure on the basket. Like three and a half free throw attempts per game for a guy like this, it's gonna change. Like I, I don't really have a ton of concern with it, but it's probably the thing in his game that annoys me the most. Maybe can, is the way to put it right now.
1: Can like, I ask? Can I ask one question yeah. on that, Sam? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I'm still uh, always trying to figure out like what year it is and which variation of G League rules we're going by how much of the free throw attempt numbers are influenced by different free throw rules that they have in the G league?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't, I haven't deep dived into that yet. That's a really good point. Very well could be a big part of it. The other part of it, I think plays a role. I think he's so good at avoiding contact on the ground that like he opens up angles almost like a little bit too easily. Like I think he could stand to like go into guys' bodies more often. Uh, and force that contact. And because he has such strong contact balance through his core, through his upper half, through his like torso, I think he would be able to absorb that and have success with it. Um, but I think that both of those things are real factors when evaluating that for sure. Um, with Scoot, the other thing is the defense. So inherently, when you take a guy that is six foot two, long as scoot's arms are there are limitations when you get to the highest levels let's say uh on a night to night basis i don't think scoot henderson is such a concerningly bad defender to where you're going to have to figure things out around him uh, i think he's actually like going to be like totally okay and probably be like an average defender in the regular season in the playoffs when like for instance if the houston rockets get scoot henderson they are going to have to go through Luka Doncic to win the Western Conference if they continue to build properly, right? Luka is going to try and get Scoot isolated on onto him all the time, and just be six foot eight, two hundred and forty five pounds, and just try to bury him. I think that Scoot is strong enough to at least like withhold and like hold his position and make Luka shoot like a eighteen footer. But at the same token, if that's Kevin Durant, let's say, early in his career, and like, honestly, so Kevin Durant's 34, right? You're drafting Scoot, you know, to win a title probably by the time Kevin Durant's 39 or potentially even out of the NBA at that point. So, like, there, there may not be another Kevin Durant, but there will be someone else uh, outside of this that could be a factor here, Um Kevin Durant's just going to shoot over the top of him at the end of the day. Like, if you're in the NBA Finals against Kevin Durant and you have a six-foot-two guy, KD is going to try and isolate onto that guy. He's going to try and shoot over the top. That's why, for instance, like Dirty Dancer in the comments asks, does any actual point guard besides maybe Drew attempt to guard Luka? Once you get to the playoffs, it kind of doesn't matter because the whole thing is that you're trying to get the weakest link on your defense, on the perimeter, isolated onto your best offensive player. And again, this isn't to say Scoot is a weak link defensively. He's just small. And if he's the smallest guy on the court and someone like Luka Doncic can shoot over the top of him, that is a real factor to consider here. What are kind of your thoughts on Scoot Henderson's defense and some of the limitations that that could pose?
1: Yeah. So I want to be very clear here that small does not equal being a bad defender. That what yes. we've seen over the last several years is that teams that have really good offensive engines who are small but also happen to struggle a little bit on the defensive end because they're not physically strong enough or they you know they're just they don't compete and aren't smart to mitigate some of the ways that they can get switched uh they're the ones that struggle. I'm thinking of the Kemba Walkers of the world, maybe a little bit Kyrie Irving in that regard, Trey Young has been one that's come up you know year after year here you can be smaller, and and by that I mean under about 6'4", and still have a defensive impact. So for me, Scoot Henderson has to go a little bit to the like Kyle Lowry weightlifting classes and find ways to get his legs strong enough to be able to, like you said, hold up in the post a little bit more and just force guys to take jump shots instead of getting to the basket. There are two other parts of this that are really important. One of them is how willing you are at the point of attack to kind of get into other smaller guys on the defensive end of the floor and make them run their offense from behind the three point line. That's an underrated part of having a, a quickness and an athleticism advantage is if you find yourself on an Island with guys, you have to be able to disrupt them and run their offense farther out. And I think scoot has the physical capability to do that. The other part of making sure you don't get picked apart in the postseason or consistently uh, taken advantage of in switches is having the off ball awareness along with your teammates of kind of how to, how to mitigate that, how to pre switch, how to scram switch in, in the post if somebody tries to take you in there. Everything that I've seen and heard about Scoot Henderson is that he's got a very high basketball IQ and will understand how to do this. The challenge, and this is where, maybe we open up again the conversation about whether he would be deserving of going number one is that the rest of your roster has to be perfectly fitting around someone like Scoot in order to protect him in some of those situations. You can't afford to have another smaller player out there. Everybody else has to have a really high basketball IQ. So from a roster construction standpoint, Scoot Henderson as transcendent as he's going to be on offense you still need in the postseason to surround him with different types of defenders who are longer and bigger and can handle some of those switches, have the awareness defensively to know when to switch and protect him off ball so that he doesn't get exposed in those easy ways. And that's more about, just physical limitations at his size than his willingness and ability to defend. I have no questions that he's going to be a good point of attack defender, chase guys over ball screens, be able to contest from behind, really pick up the pressure on defense. But we are always talking about and trying to scheme for playoff wins and playoff basketball. The game slows down teams dissect you and know exactly what run, what plays to run and actions to use to get the weakest player on their best offensive piece. And Scoot, this is as much about Scoot's willingness and and IQ to off-ball switch and know how to play through some of his his disadvantages as much as the roster that they put around him to blanket him.
0: So, and here's the final part of this before we kind of like talk about, you know, the comparison to Vic, right? Scoot Henderson is... Regarded literally by every evaluator, you will talk to. Um, at some point, I'm going to try and get him on the podcast and talk to him uh, about all of this stuff. But like, he is incredibly competitive. Like he is. Anyone who was in those at those games against Vegas or against the um, those games in Vegas against Victor Wembanyama, they were just like, this guy is the alpha out on the court right now. Like, he is out there talking shit to everybody. He wants to own this world uh, when he is on the court in such a substantial way. And those are just the kind of dudes that, like, I buy. Like, I just buy this dude as the centerpiece of my team. Like, for instance, the thing that drives me nuts about the Rockets is, like, they don't hold anybody accountable, right? Uh, The Rockets are like the least accountable NBA basketball team I've ever seen. I cannot imagine Scoot Henderson, like standing for some of the bullshit closeouts, that Jalen green like throws out there or some of the like ways that Jalen green will just like die on the vine of a screen. And I I watched the Rockets last night and last night was like a particularly bad Jalen green defensive game. So like, it's just top of my mind. I don't mean to like harp on him though, like in a, you know, disastrous way. But like, I just see it as like, scoot is going to look at that dude and just be like, dude, you got to compete. Like it just kind of comes, that's what it comes down to. Like he's going to, he is going to compete and he's going to raise the level of everybody else around him through his competitiveness. I think uh, at a really, really high level.
1: I'm so glad you brought this up uh, because this is kind of where I wanted to finish my spiel uh, on scoot. Henderson. When you are a superstar, when you can do all of the things physically that's and from a skill perspective that Scoot Henderson can do, the rules are different. The expectations are different for what you need to bring forth yep. every single game and every single night. There's a level of consistency that you need to bring when you're the best player on a team and you're expected to fill that role. And because he's such a good passer and a scorer, he has to be able to intuitively feel from a competitive standpoint when his team needs him to be a guy that just makes the right decision and moves the ball around, shares it, has a decent balance between scoring and passing, and when they yep. need him to take over. And I will always harp on the performance that he had against Victor Manyama and Metropolitans in that first game where he was healthy because he came out there trying to score and prove a point right from the jump. That was his competitiveness. That was what he wanted to prove for himself, but it also allowed the rest of his teammates to settle into the game and have it be a competitive environment not have to chip and claw from behind. And then in the fourth quarter, when everyone might have expected him to come out there and just try to take the game over as a scorer and make this about Victor versus Scoot, He was the one that was out there diagnosing who the right pass is going to be for making every single right decision and had the ultimate feel of this is how we're going to close the game to win the basketball game. I'll still be a scoring threat, but I've done enough early on with getting my own that it's going to change the way we're being played. And now I've got to create for others. Just this this feel of knowing when to take over is so impossible to teach. And only the really, really great players seem to have it. And I think that that's yeah. one thing I've noticed from Scoot Henderson thus far. Is As competitive as he is, we can talk about his IQ, his mental makeup, the drive and determination. But he's got a feel for when he needs to turn it on to a second level. And it's great that he has that level, but <laughs> only only the great ones who are, yeah. uh, end up harnessing that kind of have their way to feel their way through it. And that's what's impressed me most about Scoot.
0: Okay. So I've kind of explained now why I think Scoot is the best guard prospect I've ever evaluated. It just is, he's more complete than a lot of these guys that have entered the league. Derek Rose, because of the shooting, John Morant, honestly, because of the shooting as well. Uh, I, I believe in him just like a little bit more than those guys uh i I love him he has that same level of explosiveness that strength i think that strength allows him potentially to be even a little bit better defensively than what john Morant is long term and all of this is like john Morant is one of the top 10 players in the league i think scoot is like on that pathway basically that's how good i think this guy is okay so now comes to the conversation of number one and why we're doing all of this right I, I do just want to be clear. I have Scoot in the same tier as Victor Wembanyama. Me personally, I think it's like insane to like put, you know, Amon Thompson, Brandon Miller, etc. into that conversation with Scoot. Uh, I think he is incredible. Like I... I, I I get like from team fit in that perspective, like there are maybe some teams that have lead guards, like for instance, the Detroit Pistons just drafted Jaden Ivey and Cade Cunningham. I get it. I think you have to draft Scoot Henderson. I do. I think he is genuinely a franchise altering talent. I think he is better than guys like Jalen Green. I think he's, like, again, I have a better grade on him than what I had on Cade Cunningham. And I have Cade Cunningham, like, I had him so, so high and still I'm a really, really big believer in him. Uh, he's unbelievable to me. And you just have to take that guy, you know, at number two, at the very least, you have Victor Wembanyama number one. I do. I have Victor Wembanyama at number one. If I'm being completely transparent here,
1: why I'll start with you. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, it's Victor Weminyama is just such a different level of player because he can do things that we've never seen before. There are two areas that kind of give him a little bit more of the tiebreaker to me. And, and again, we, we can say the word novel and novelty all the time on this podcast. There's a certain level of that with, with Vic. But two things. One of them I already alluded to on the podcast. One is scheme versatility and being able to construct a roster that's flexible around you versus has to be flexible because of you. I think as we talked about with Scoot Henderson on the defensive end of the floor, there's just a certain level of length and size that they need on the defensive end in order to make sure that they're protecting him to the max that you don't have to do with a guy like Victor Weminyama. In fact, Vic is kind of the ultimate protector for some of those other guys because of his length, his shot blocking ability, the things that he can do on the defensive end of the floor. The yep. the second thing for me with, with Victor Weminyama is where the game is trending over the next several years. As a, a talent evaluator and a drafter, you're looking to get a guy that's going to be your franchise cornerstone for the next decade plus when you yep. evaluate players who are this damn talented at the top of a draft. And what I've noticed in the NBA right now is there are more teams like Oklahoma City, like Toronto, like Orlando, who are stockpiling this new wave generation of really talented with the ball, perimeter skilled players who are above six foot eight, six foot nine, six ten. And as the NBA continues to trend in that direction, we may be seeing some really competitive teams, field rosters where there's nobody on the floor beneath six six or six seven where everybody's got a massive wingspan, everybody can shoot and play on the perimeter, and that makes it really easy to pick apart some of those matchups. Victor Weminyama's size, length, and perimeter skill is not just going to blend in with where the NBA is trending in that regard. He seems so good in those areas that it's going to stand out. He's that much bigger and longer than everybody else. He's a cheat code over any type of defender with his back to the basket in isolation and the end of a shot clock. There are so many things about where the game is trending that leads me to believe Victor Weminyama is the guy that grabs that torch and runs with it in that direction yeah. and almost forces the rest of the league to catch up by having multiple guys with seven foot wingspan to our skilled in perimeter just to be able to match him and guard him so that they can switch those screens and not be taken advantage of in those mid post areas. So if, if Victor Weminyama is who we think he is, if we can continue to see the intersection of size and skill development at a young age that we're starting to right now. And over the next decade, size is going to matter a hell of a lot more than it does in today's current NBA. It just gives yeah. me another reason to favor Victor over Scoot.
0: Someone uh, in the comments earlier brought up the idea of just like, you know, you, you can't, when we were talking about like, you know, you need to have length around a roster built around Scoot Henderson. Right. Right that, oh, well, when you draft Scoot, you can't account for these things, right? Actually, think it's kind of important to account for the potential of how you build a roster around a player when selecting them and the ease with which you're going to be able to build a roster around when selecting them. That's what we talk about whenever we talk about scalability of prospects, right? And by the way, Scoot Henderson is an incredibly scalable prospect. I I don't mean to say that he's not. Like compared to everyone else, Scoot is just very scalable because, you know, it's more scalable than anything else. Franchise altering talents, right? Like the guy that you think can be the number one dude, but also he's so unselfish with the ball in his hands. He can create shots for teammates. He's not a disaster defensively. Having said that he is position locked at the one Vic is position locked at the five, but because Vic's skills. Don't take anything off of the table at the five in addition to everything else you're saying, right? Like everything else you said is absolutely accurate. I'm saying additionally, this is not my only reason why. Um, given how many skills that the five typically takes off the court uh, in one direction or another, we think of someone like Demonas Sabonis is someone that is incredibly uh, multi, multi-skilled, Right in terms of the ability to score in the post, the ability to make passing reads, the ability to run dribble handoffs, the ability to do a number of different things, right? Um, he still takes like rim protection off the court in some way. You know, Clint Capella takes shot creation off the court in some way. Uh, Carl Towns takes like the ability to move and, you know, oh, the ability to defend in space off the table in some way. Um you know, Bama Bayo takes, uh, honestly, like kind of rim protection off court. He's a great defender. I love Bama Bayo. He's, again, I think the most switchable defender in the NBA. But the difference between him and someone like Jaron Jackson is that he's not as strong of a rim protector. Victor Wembanyama can be, in his prime, like a 39% three-point shooter that is the best rim protector in the league that can manage guys in space. You're going to play him in drop coverage for sure. But like, I think he can at least live out on an Island with guys at the very least, especially in highly competitive moments. Um, The thing he might take off the table is like passing and playmaking. I think we'll see where that falls. Right. Like is, is that something that worries you at all with him?
1: I don't know if I'd call it a worry. I think it needs to be, continually develop that his processing speed and just making quicker decisions with it ha- has to matter. There, there might be an element of it that yeah. when you're like nine feet tall, your dribble's just going to come up a little bit higher. Like you don't have that quick twitch ability to make those decisions between one dribble move and the next, just because it, the ball comes up so high and he doesn't play the absolute lowest. Like he, he's low for a seven foot four guy, but that's still, you know, it, it's, it, there's less, there's more time that goes between each bounce, which means it's harder for him to make those decisions while he's covering so much ground. He's just not going to be as good of a live dribble passer.
0: I think that that's absolutely right. Uh, The other part of this is injuries, right? How concerned are you with Victor Wembanyama's injury history and just like the ability to hold up over an 82 game sample?
1: Yeah, I I think that it's, it's something you, you have to talk about. Um, I don't, love the idea of avoiding drafting all-star caliber players because you're not sure of whether they're going to be available if you can get him for 68 games of the regular season and make sure that he's healthy for the playoffs to me that's a huge win Uh, I I think that there's there's a competitive streak that Vic brings to the table that's going to make him want to play through some small bumps and bruises in ways that you know, I don't. I think I favor that. I like competitive guys who want to be out there and tend to favor them a little bit more. But I think we're seeing it right now with a guy like Giannis, when you have such a heavy workload and you do as much as you've done year after year after year, like your production can start to fall just a little bit if you are nursing those bumps and bruises and and not as uh, you're not as able to play through them anymore. So for me, it's it's about how you manage Vic and not as much about trying to avoid getting him because he's been injured so so much. Like you just have to have some different rules with how you play him on back-to-backs, what type of physical matchups you have, maybe having some minute limitations after he suffers a certain type of injuries because he's going to be more prone to being injured when he's fatigued. To, To me, that's the biggest thing is just making sure that you're really cognizant of ways to keep him healthy as opposed to avoiding drafting him because he has a little bit of a history and at his size, we haven't seen a ton of guys make it through a career with that much durability.
0: I think that's right. The other side of this is I feel like people haven't really talked about this that often, but like Howard Beck, for instance, in his great profile that he wrote on sports illustrated uh, mentioned that all three of scoot Henderson's sisters suffered knee injuries in college uh, I believe his brother CJ also suffered a knee injury in high school there. You can make cases for this both ways. Like if you want to make the case that like, oh, there's like a family history here in the same way that there was with Michael Porter. And thus, like, there's this, right. Uh You can make a case that way. If you want to make a case for, oh, Victor Wembanyama, he has, you know, this history of picking up little injuries, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You can make a case that way. Right. End of the day. I'm just evaluating these guys on how good they are. And what I think they bring to the table, what I think they take off of the table, everything like that. Um, And to me, at their best, I think that Vic takes a little bit less off the table. I think he, and I think that Vic also is, there's like this, if you miss on Victor Wembanyama and he turns into like the upside of what he can be, I think there's like a non-zero chance this guy is like modern Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right? Like not the same, you know, kind of player, like a totally different guy. But like everything that we've seen so far says that like his upside is top 20 player of all time. Let's say there, right? Uh, If he stays healthy, if he continues to grow his game, that's what it is. If Scoot stays healthy and reaches the ceiling and everything like that, Yeah, could absolutely lead you to a title. Could absolutely win MVPs. Derrick Rose won an MVP. John Moran is going to be consistently in the MVP conversation for the next few years. I feel like there's a difference between missing on a potentially like dynasty starting player and missing on a perennial MVP candidate. Um, I would feel more worried about missing on the former than the latter, I
1: guess. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I just, again, I have Vic number one. I know you mentioned having them kind of in the same tier. Like I don't have them in the same tier. I created a whole new tier for Victor Weminyama based on (laughs) who he is and what he's shown. Like I've never scouted an alien before. This is the first time I've done it. So I think the rules have to be kind of thrown out a little bit and I would much rather take the guy and try to manage some of the, injury prevention stuff as best we can to keep him healthy for playoff basketball and just know that the impact he has when he's on the floor is way too damn good to pass up
0: yeah uh yeah i mean look he's just totally completely unbelievable every single time i watch the guy i'm just like this is this is like breaking my brain um it just really is (laughs) There's just not another way to put it yeah Uh, okay Let's go to our second topic. We went longer on scoop than I wanted to. Honestly, I was thinking that'd be like 30 minutes and it ended up being like 50. Um, let's go to uh, rookie of the year top fives, sure. right? And maybe we'll buzz through this a little bit quicker than what I was expecting to. The way we're doing this is if we were voting on rookie of the year, what would our top five be? That means that we have to account for full season. That means we have to account for not just you know what the potential could be down the road, not what we think in five years these guys are going to look like. What they have shown through somewhere between 45 and 50 games, depending on what how they have played. Do you want to go bottom to top or do you want to start at one
1: and go down? So before we do that, can I give two really quick diatribes? Yes, please. Really, really quickly. The first is that I think that there's a certain level of bias that we give towards players who come out of the gates through the first 10 or 15 games. And yes. we, it, it's kind of anchoring bias, right? That we see the first impression of them and we hang on to that impression throughout the rest of their rookie season. These guys are really learning on the fly here, continuing to get better in certain areas. You cannot be anchored to the perception of a guy for how he performed right out of the gates. I think a lot of times that gets you in trouble. There are guys who might be out of the rotation at the start of the season or have very minimal pathway to minutes who end up growing into that as the season goes on. And and that's just kind of the reality of the situation. So let's throw out the first month of the season as as far as preconceptions of saying, I'm just, he had a great start. Therefore, he's top two or three in rookie of the year voting. Like we cannot get anchored to that. The, the second thing to me is always trying to figure out the difference between efficiency versus volume of minutes and opportunity. That's a really hard part of this conversation for rookie of the year because a lot of times rookies who get heavy minutes are doing so on teams that might not be in the playoff picture. Therefore, their opportunity, their volume is a little bit higher. How do we compare those guys to the rookies who are playing a, a really impactful eighteen to twenty-four minutes a night on a good team, I happen to think that that's harder to do as a as a young player. Yeah. But that this is also very often a, a, an award built on accolades and trying to figure out who's you know projecting or projectable into a little bit higher of a role because they've already proven that as a rookie. And and that's the tough balance that I have to strike. Are are we rewarding kind of the numbers and the overall production of guys who are playing 28 plus minutes a night, or are we looking at those guys who can come in on a really good team, play 18 to 24, be solid, be efficient, but that's kind of where they stay for the rest of their career.
0: Yep. Okay. Let's go bottom to top. Sure. uh, To start, who is your number five?
1: I have a tie here at number five uh, for me <laughs> because I, I just wasn't decisive enough to pick five, Sam. I, I, I wasn't oh, able Adam. to do it. Uh, but I had those two guys that I was talking about a little bit earlier with the efficient uh, roles on, on pretty good teams right now kind of hanging around the playoff pictures. It's Walker Kessler in Utah and Jalen Williams, J-Dub, for the Oklahoma City Thunder. I couldn't choose between them. They both impact the game and s- like just – completely different ways Uh, but I I think both have exceeded clearly exceeded expectations and been parts of the reason why their teams are also doing so
0: yep okay so I have Walker Kessler at number four right now I have Jalen Williams at number three right now okay Which one of those two do you want to start with and talk about first?
1: Well, if we're going bottom up, then let's go with Walker Kessler since he's four on your board.
0: Okay. So Walker Kessler has been elite defensively the entire season. Uh, He has just immediately taken to being like a super high level drop coverage defender. Even when the numbers weren't there, he had taken on a full level, like impactful performance from the jump. Like for instance, like Grape Ape just said it's a full season award and Kessler has averaged 19 minutes per game so far this season. I do agree, which is why I have him fourth, but like in all of those 19 minutes, he's basically been effective from day one and he's only getting better. Uh, So I I do understand that point in terms of the minute load. And I agree that like, he's a guy that's more like on the rise as opposed to a guy that is kind of tailing off a little bit. But even before this little great run, Walker Kessler was really, really good defensively. Like the jazz is on off numbers. When Walker Kessler is on the court defensively are kind of staggering. And like, you could point to the fact that he's playing behind Lowry Markin, and Kelly Olenek guys that aren't like wild level defenders, but like, They're still only giving up like 112.5 points per 100 possessions when he's on the court versus like 119 or 120 when he's on the court. Uh, Now let's get to the fact that like over the last 25 games, he's just been like staggeringly good. Uh, He's averaging like 10 points, 10 rebounds. 2.2 2.2 blocks shooting 70% from the field. Uh, he's crushing the offensive glass. He's doing a really good job on that side of the equation. But, like, since he entered the starting lineup, let's say what I imagine will be like pretty, maybe not full time, full time, but like pretty close. So, this might be a thing that they do moving forward. He's averaging 11 and a half points, 11.7 rebounds. Two and a half blocks, 1.5 assists to 1.0 turnovers. And for a guy that, you know, is relatively limited on the offensive end, having that positive assist to turnover ratio is really good. 65% from the field so far. Uh, he's just been awesome on both ends of the court. I think that this is like a genuine, like very, very high level rim protector from day one and should be midseason, first team all rookie. We'll see, we'll see where it goes as teams get more tape on him. That that man though, like his instincts, playing like cat and mouse and drop coverage yeah. are unbelievable.
1: Yep, he's he's so good and and he's huge. He just eats up space on the interior. like yep. We got used to seeing it at, at, at Auburn how big he was. He still looks gargantuan out there on an NBA floor. Totally. The amount of space that he eats up. And I'm glad you brought up the positive assisted turnover numbers. I'm floored by how much you know feel he has and and touch with the the ball in his hands of just being able to make the right play and understand like a lot of it comes off of tip outs or things like that, but to have a positive assist to turnover for his size is outrageous.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's go to J-Dub now. Uh, I've, I wrote a big thing on Jalen Williams recently. I feel like I've talked to him or talked about him a lot on the podcast recently. So I, I will, I feel like we haven't talked as much about him, uh, cause I talked about the thunder a little bit with Schlecht, you know, I've you know, done a little bit more of thunder stuff recently. What have been your impressions of Jada this season?
1: Well, I know you and I talked about him on a podcast recently too. Yeah. Like, you know, he, he seems to always catch my eye when I watch a thunder game, the ability to blend next to Gideon SGA and be more of an off ball guy, a cutter, a, a tertiary playmaker or run the backup point guard spot with his length is absolutely absurd. Really good decision-maker, supremely efficient finisher around the basket. That's been what's caught my eye the most on the offensive end of the floor, is that he seems to score around the basket with a lot of ease. Uh, I think the floater is a huge part of that, that he's added that to his arsenal a little bit more consistently. Want to see the, the three-ball fall, but if you're 29% from three and still over 50% from the field, like he's, just, he's so, so, so impressive uh, inside of eight feet. Really, really been pleased by, by Williams.
0: I think he has like, it's like the second or third most dunks in the league among all perimeter players. Um, like certainly the most dunks among guards shout out Schlecht and Al Spears on the slam and jam for getting me with that one. Um, I thought it was Matherin. and he's just like not even close, Uh, but he's just finished. He finishes at a super high level. Even when he's not dunking, he just knows how to kind of get around the basket and make things easier for himself. The thing that I always talk about with J-Dub is that he's just like a, you know, he, he fills so many little holes and ticks so many boxes. Like on one possession, he can come down and set a screen for Shea Enroll roll to the rim and be like a rim runner. The next possession, he can be in the dunker spot. The next possession, he can, they'll take Shea off the court and like he'll like run the offense momentarily, right? The next possession, like he'll run like a ball screen and then hit a kick out. The next possession, he'll be like spotting up and he'll attack close out off of a spot up, right? Uh, again, this is a guy that I just like have to have uh, in my first team, all rookie team. I have him number three. Uh, I-, I think he has been. Yep. So, 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 so good. There are some defensive worries that he's going to have to figure out. Uh, But just the overall pace of play, his comfort level, his uh, intelligence, it's just really, really high level every time I watch him.
1: Yeah, super impressed by him. Uh, A huge reason why the Thunder bench and their minutes don't fall off when guys like SGA or Giddy sit. He's been tremendous. Yep.
0: Okay. My number five is Keegan Murray. And I love Keegan Murray. Uh, I had... Basically six guys for five spots here. Uh, A.J. Griffin was kind of the guy that, you know, ended up falling off for me just at the end. I think that at the end of the day, I defaulted to Keegan playing a slightly bigger role uh, on a team that is like genuinely winning basketball games right now. Like they're a top four team in the Western Conference. He is a starter on that team. He's the fifth option starter. So is A.J. on the Hawks but it feels like Keegan's role is like continuing to rise a little bit throughout this time. Um, Every time I watch Keegan, I'm just like, this guy is like ready to go right now, knocks down shots at a super high level, really spaces the floor, which is super important for their structure and for their roster. I really, really love everything that we've seen from him uh, at this point in Sacramento. I think he was exactly what Sacramento was hoping for in terms of an immediate impact player. Uh, in today's NBA. Defensively, he has been okay. There are still some slowness things that prop up from time to time. Overall, though, he's a part of a super impactful lineup that just constantly works. And he's a big part of why it works because of that floor spacing aspect that he provides for De'Aaron Fox and Damanis
1: Sabonis. He's up to over 41% from three on the season. And if he's able to sustain that again, and this whole conversation is about projecting forward through the rest of the year where guys are right now with their production and how they've continued to get better or or see their role grow throughout the rookie season. Like Keegan Murray being able to shoot 41% from three on a team that's way outperforming expectations is part of the reason why I actually had him as my number three. Uh, That is, as I was kind of splitting hairs between Kessler and J-Dub at number five uh Keegan Murray does come up at number 3 for me. I'm impressed by the volume that he's able to play and yeah. it, this is might sound like the most backhanded compliment ever, but if you can see a guy stay on the floor and not notice that he's a rookie and just blend in without having to do too much or make anything happen, like he doesn't stand out. And to me, that's a positive for a rookie that he's not getting yeah. picked on. He just blends in and looks like he belongs out there and is another one of the guys. Uh, really impressed by Keegan.
0: Okay, so we have knocked off your number five,
1: five, and number three.
0: We have knocked off your number three. Who do you have at number four?
1: I have Jaden Ivy for the Detroit Pistons. Okay. This is
0: a guy that I think I had at seven or eight, uh, along with Andrew Nemhard.
1: So I have Ivy because I think it's starting to click for him a little bit more. Uh, there I agree with there, there has been vast improvement over the last couple of weeks here. And in January, he's averaging 15 and a half points, four and a half boards over four assists with a real positive assist to turnover ratio, shooting 42, 41 and a half percent from the field and seems to be getting to the free throw line a little less than I'd like. Uh, but, He's he's showing his aggression uh, in picked spots a little bit more than he was earlier in the season. I think he was out there initially just trying to play a million miles an hour, and now he's starting to find a little bit more pace in in-between game and knowing when and how to pick his spots. This is a little bit of projecting forward on my part, though. See, seeing this improvement that he's made over the last couple weeks, thinking it's going to continue to last as the opportunity is there, for him to get a lot of minutes with the ball in his hands. I also think that if you're a rookie, regardless of how successful your team is, and you can come in there and kind of average like 15, 4, and 4 over the course of what might end up being a 45 game sample for Ivy, that's impressive enough to be in the top five of rookie of the year rankings. Like he's, if he can keep this level up, he's going to be really, really just have too much on his resume to keep him off the list for me.
0: Yeah, I I get it. I do. Uh, I do just want to bring up Jaden Ivey over his last 16 games, played 30 minutes a night, 41% from the field, 37.5% from three, 74% from the line. Uh, All of those are improvements drastically or slightly, depending on uh, which number you're looking at. Five assists to 3.2 turnovers. I do think the turnover number does generally need to improve, but averaging about 16 points a game. He is getting better. He is becoming much more comfortable, confident. Uh, He he looks more aggressive out there. And if you look uh, generally over his last seven games, it's like 44, 36, 81 with 16 points per game, six assists, 3.3 turnovers. So again, as Adam noted, the numbers are going up. I think it's like fairly reasonable to anticipate that Ivy will probably end up in somewhere somewhere that three to seven range for me very well could end up at number three. That would not surprise me at all. In long-term, I have no concerns about Jaden Ivy whatsoever. So really, really love uh, how he's growing throughout the course of the season, I guess is the way I would put it. Okay. Number two, we both have the same number two. We both have the same number one. Uh, Number two is Ben Matherin for us. Now, I'm glad you brought up the idea of that anchoring bias at the front. Because I do think a little bit of that is happening with Ben right now. And if you look at his last 30 games, it has not been great. He's averaging 16 points a game, negative assist to turnover ratio, shooting only 41% from the field, 24% from three. Uh, he is getting to the line. That's actually like kind of what's saving him for me in that time he's like kind of living at the line. Like he's averaging six free throws a game, which is a really, really high level number for a rookie, as we'll talk about when we talk about the guy at number one as well. So to me, that th- those are the things that are like kind of saving him. But I, early on, we talked a lot about how it was like Matherin and Paulo racing for number one. I think Ben is very clearly in this next tier of guys, and if he ended up falling to three, four, five, if the shooting does not come around throughout the course of the season, that would absolutely not surprise me at this point.
1: Yeah, he doesn't add enough outside of the scoring to kind of continue to stay in that conversation if he's not an efficient scorer. And yeah. over the last 30 games, he hasn't been really efficient. Now, you mentioned he gets to the free throw line a ton. That's a saving grace for him. He uses his athleticism well. I think the game has been made very simple for Matherin in Indiana. Hey, come in off the bench. Go get yours. Go attack the basket. Get downhill. Use your athleticism. And yeah. I think that with a guy, you know, particularly like Jaden Ivey we're talking about, who's putting up very similar numbers, you know, 16 and 4, over the last 15 games, as opposed to Matherin, who's been doing that over his last 30. Ivy's doing more with the ball in his hands, and he's asked to do a hell of a lot more just running and orchestrating the show, being more of a lead guard out there. So if the the gap continues to narrow between Matherin and some of these other guys from a statistical perspective, he's exactly the guy I brought up the anchoring bias for that we can't yep. fall in love with how great he was out of the gate and the numbers he put up over the first month and a half of the season. If it doesn't translate to a full 82.
0: Okay. Number one is Paula Bancaro. <laughs> this is just like a very easy one yep. <laughs> at the yep. end of the day. I'm sorry. Uh, he is just by far the best rookie in the league. I can't really get to the point where I think he's an all-star. Um, I think the efficiency is just not quite good enough right now. He's averaging 21 points. Six and a half rebounds, four assists per game. Again, another guy just absolutely living at the foul line, averaging like eight free throw attempts per game. That's just completely bonkers for a rookie. And it's why we should all buy into him very long-term as being an elite prospect. Uh, We'll say there's been slight, let's go slight drop off since the crazy, unbelievable start averaging 19.3 points per game, 41% from the field. Six rebounds, four assists, not really drop off in those numbers, but there has been a drop off in the scoring a little bit and a little bit in terms of the efficiency uh, over his last 23 games. So that is something to track. But at the end of the day, he's just out there like being the primary creator along with Franz Wagner uh, on a team that has been, you know is awesome is, or is fun to watch. I think really is uh, anyone in the NBA uh, over the course of the last little while, at the very least, basically since they got Markel Fultz back, Fultz has been really, really fun yeah, uh, and really, really valuable for them. I think basically having like an adult backcourt is funny. I was talking to uh, Steve Cerruti, producer of the Ryan Russillo show and a big fan of the Orlando magic. And he shared with me, uh, a number that was on like an Instagram link saying that, you know, basically the best five man lineups in the NBA right now, number one is like the Denver Nuggets starting lineup. And then number two is Markel Fultz, Gary Harris, Franz Wagner, Paolo Bancaro, Wendell Carter. They're at like 23 a plus 23.2 net rating right now. It's unbelievable. Like that team is really, really fun. It's just like when they have to take any of those guys off, it's a real problem. Um, yeah. Yeah, Paul loves a stud. There's just like no other way to put it.
1: The amazing thing to me, and I'll always say this, how a teenager can come into the NBA and just muscle around grown-ass men. Like What Bancaro does in the lane, even when he's not getting to the foul line and not getting fouls called, he's going up and through guys. He uses his shoulders so damn well. I think early on in the season – he was settling a little bit more for mid-range pull-ups. He was isolating yep. at the elbow and trying to show the depth of his bag. He has started to figure out, and I think it's why that lineup is working better and the magic are, are playing better. He's started to figure out that he's just got to use his physical tools and live in the lane and make those plays happen. He's he's special, Sam. He's he's gonna be a special player for a long time.
0: Yeah, look, like we can you know parse with the idea that like you know, they need to – he needs to defend at a higher level. I agree with that. He needs to shoot at a higher level. I agree with that. There's just no shot creation force in this rookie class that's anywhere remotely close. I will say I just want to bring up, like, the all-star conversation has been a thing with Paulo. I think that his teammate, Devin Kennedy, brought it up on Twitter a little while ago. Uh, it's just you can't get him into the forward conversation. The forward conversation in the East is just a joke. It's Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo – Jason Tatum, uh, well, it's front court, so it's Joel Embiid as well, right. is in that mix for the front court. Uh, Pascal Siakam, Bam bio, Julius Randle, that's seven already. And like Paulo just straight up like does not have a case over any of those guys. Yeah. Um, you know, w- we could parse over some other players, I'm sure, but that's, you know, Jimmy Butler would be seven, because Jimmy Butler, I think, also falls in the front court, actually, now that I think about it. Uh So, or no, Jimmy Butler would be eight. I'm sorry. Uh, Just kind of thinking about it. And then on top of it, like if I'm being completely honest, I think that like, I think that Kristaps probably has a better case even than Paulo right now. Uh, Not to say that, you know, I think that Kristaps should make the all-star team, but I I think that that kind of puts it in perspective a little bit more. He's averaging more points on better efficiency across the board, rebounding better. Uh, has improved a little bit as a passer this season. He's nowhere near as good of a passer as Paulo is, but he's also an actual rim protector who plays a defensive role there for that team. Um, You know, and and that's like a league average defense essentially. So there's just like, even like Chris who I don't think is going to make the all-star team by any stretch. There's just like not really case for Paulo over him, let alone um, some of these Mm -hmm. other guys. So I just wanted to put that in context, but Paulo would probably be in my top 12, something like that, like for all-star forwards, which is crazy and a total credit to him. So that's where we're at with Paulo Bancaro. It's it's more the conversation of should he be an all-star versus should he be rookie of the year? Yeah. Okay. Let's go to questions. We got a couple in the YouTube comments that I wanted to hit. So Andrew Kolb asked, how would you compare Jairus Walker with Usman Garuba as prospects? They seem to have similar size and similar skills defensively. Oh, man, Andrew. I loved Usman. Usman's just yeah. nowhere close to Jairus offensively is the thing. Usman's hands are just like not, it's just like not even close, really. Jairus can put the ball on the floor at a much higher level, much more comfortable shooter. I understand what you're talking about defensively. Honestly, I think Jairus is a little bit more athletic than Usman is. Like, I, th- I always saw Usman yeah. as like a four or five. I yeah. think Jairus can just like straight play the four and like kind of switch a little bit more than Usman can. I love Usman's feel. I love him as a weak side rim protector. I think Usman's going to play in the NBA for a while as long as the offense gets like an acceptable level. But like the level to which Jairus Walker is better than Usman Garuba as an offensive player yeah. it is just like fairly drastic. I think, right, Adam.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's the shooting. I think he's so much farther along in that regard with touch and you'd mentioned put the ball on the floor. Like as as good of a passer as Garuba is, it's almost entirely out of short roll situations because that's the only way he can get momentum going towards the basket. When it comes to Walker, there is a little bit of like bend and natural fluidity when he puts the ball on the floor against a bigger guy. I'm not saying he's going to yeah. you know create out-of-ball screens by any means, but if he's got a bigger guy on him in space, he can put the ball on the floor and, and make a decision going to the basket.
0: Okay, from Swaggy D, uh, Rockets fan here, I've got high hopes for Jabari Smith. Do you think he eventually becomes a star player? Look, I mean – I always liked Jabari because I thought, you know, we talked about scalability in the conversation of Vic versus Scoot. I always have just thought Jabari is like an incredibly scalable player that will really help you win basketball games. Like if your combination moving forward would be Scoot Henderson and Jabari Smith, both of whom are hyper competitors, both of whom are hyper scalable to any situation. I think that's actually like an awesome, you know, combination to build around. Uh Because I again, I think that, having two guys there that I think want to hold people like Jabari Smith, like yells at his teammates, like on the court when they miss rotations and stuff, he's just a rookie. So like, nobody's really going to listen to him as much. It feels like, and respect for that. Like, you know, I think they need veterans that are willing to come in that have done it before that will hold people accountable. But I, I think that with Jabari, he's probably more of like a top, you know, 30 player, top 40 player in the NBA at his ceiling. That as opposed to like a top, you know, fifteen player in the NBA, top twenty player, which is probably more what I'm guessing you're asking in terms of like being a star in the NBA.
1: Yeah, I think star is always such a relative term uh, sometimes, but I've always thought of Jabari as being more of like the elitist of the elite role players. That his offense is still somewhat dependent on other people creating for him. So it's going to be about the teammates that he has, the scheme that he's in to get him all of those open shots that maximize the floor spacing that he provides on the offensive end really competitive guy really strong defender individually and i think that he's going to turn into a a really helpful team defender when he's surrounded by non-teenagers uh but on the same token like his offense has always been in my eyes somewhat reliant on others
0: yep so evan glansman asked uh what do we think of Matthew Cleveland out of Florida state as a prospect? Did we answer something like this last week? I can't remember.
1: So last week when we were talking and doing our mock draft, we'd mentioned guys that might've just missed the cut. And Cleveland's name came up as somebody who's starting to produce a lot more, yeah. uh, particularly in, in conference play here. Like it, it, To me, it just, it always comes down to the belief in the jump shot, not necessarily the numbers of it, if he's starting to make more, but our team's going to respect him enough as a jump shooter to change the way that he's played. And And if not, like, I don't know if I trust him a ton with the ball in his hands at the next level. I'm intrigued. I've always been intrigued. He was, he was high on my list as an incoming freshman at Florida State. But I don't know if I've seen enough growth as a playmaker and a scorer to, to really vault him high into that conversation.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I, I don't buy the shot at all. If I'm being completely transparent, I know that he's shooting 48% over his last – 13 games here. That's really the sample that people are very excited about and should be, in my opinion. Uh, 16 points per game, 10 rebounds, 2.2 assists in that time. Shooting 50% from the field, 48% from three on very limited attempts, 71% from the free throw line. I think he actually does have, like, semi-real touch. It's just that, like, the mechanics are really bad. Like, it's so wonky and mechanical and like, he like kind of brings it across his body a little bit. Like it's hard. He's, he's a, he's one where like, if he gets with the right shooting coach, I think it would be really beneficial for him. Um, Yeah. Interesting player. Really, Really, really interesting player.
1: I also think with the shot right now, part of the reason it can be effective is because he has time to get it off. That if he's, if he's crowded a little bit more, he has to be more of a quick rise threat that he might, he might struggle a little bit as a jump shooter.
0: Yep. Uh, okay. From Gaelic Elander. Hello. If the thunder can finish above 500 and qualify for the playoffs while Jalen Williams averages 15, five and three, the rest of the way, is there a chance that he catches Paulo in the rookie of the year race? I think Paulo would have to get hurt. Yeah is you know and look like i will say this like i know the odds um on paulo right now are just like absolutely bonkers for rookie of the year like they like he's like like what one of them i saw was like he's like one to 25 or something like that to win rookie of the year right now um if he gets hurt like i think that it does open some things up a little bit but if paulo stays healthy I don't think that would be enough for Jalen Williams to catch him. And I don't really yeah. see a world where Jalen will catch him.
1: But this this cannot just be an, an award, like any award that's based off of numbers only. There's an element of eye test to this and how difficult is it, what you're doing? How impressive is the role that you're carrying, the execution that you're bringing forward? Paolo is very yeah. damn impressive. Very, very damn impressive. Yeah.
0: Um, Everyone needs a smile. Ask Can you give us a hint of where you think Jabari would have been, had, or no, Chet Holmgren would have been in these rookie rankings had he not gotten hurt? I mean, look, I had Chet at number one. Um, I think he probably would have been more impactful than anyone outside of Paulo. I think Paulo is just more physically ready to do it. I would still bet on Chet out of anyone in that class, um, even with the injury that he had this year.
1: And so, I had... I had Paolo one and Chet two. So I think that that probably would hold for me because I have no evidence to believe otherwise.
0: Yep. Uh, Okay, a couple from Twitter now to close out. If none of these guys from Nerd Runner, if none of these guys get to league average from three in their prime, how would you rank them? Asar Thompson, Anthony Black, Rayon Repair, Jairus Walker, Cam Whitmore.
1: So if none of them get to league, league
0: average as shooters, average as
1: shooters, okay. I'm going to bring up my Twitter here. Can you start off the comp because I need to look at all the names out in front of me so I can see this.
0: Here, I'll, I'll send them to you in a note. It's Sore Thompson, Anthony Black, uh, Rayon Rupaire, uh, Jerris Walker, Cam Whitmore.
1: Okay. Uh, I think I have to go Cam Whitmore top of the list for me just because of the physical tools and the ability to maybe guard multiple positions. Um, I don't know. Jairus is the best defender of the group to me. I don't know if you agree with that.
0: That actually is kind of the name that stood out to me in this question. Like if none of these get guys get the league average of shooters, like their problems, yeah. <laughs> like the draft class has problems in general. Uh, it will not live up to the expectations that many have like lifted for it outside of the top two. Uh, yeah. I, I think I would say in that case, I probably would take Jairus. Then Cam Whitmore. Then a then a saw, then black, then repair.
1: Yep. Yeah, that that repair being last is where I have him too. I I debated black and a sword just a little bit, but I think I think a sword will. His athletic tools are just a a different level than ants. Yeah.
0: And it's funny, like I'm just like waiting for Cam Whitmore to like play really high-level basketball yeah. and it's just there have been flashes um I, i'm I, I would like to see more before i can like really dive in on him and dive into his tape yeah.
1: pass the ball please cam
0: yeah and like i okay dive into his tape is wrong so i've done that substantially Actually. at this point i would i would like more sample i guess of cam yep. more at this point uh, and i would like sample of him being healthy and everything Um, did, did George Kittle just do something very effective? Yes, he did. He scored or no, he didn't score. He caught a 31 yard pass. Uh, I have a, um, (laughs) I have a same game parlay of 49ers minus three and a half Kittle over 47 and a half, uh, receiving yards. So we're closing in baby. We're already, already more than halfway there on one of those. Let's go. go. There you
1: go.
0: already hit the Bengals, uh, money line this morning, which is great. We're just rolling. We got tennis later in the day. We got Andre Rublev. We got the great American hope Ben Shelton. <laughs> got to love it. This oh, is where we're at.
1: A good weekend for pocketbook Vicini. There we go.
0: I- I'm actually like trying to go to the Australian open tonight here in Melbourne because Alex Demonor plays Novak Djokovic. We could have gotten tickets last night, but we waited to see if um, Laura's, cousin and her partner wanted to come with us and in the time we waited like an hour they sold out so i'm trying to like figure out if they're going to go on sale more uh over the next little while i'm hoping so but that's neither here nor there uh adam i think that's all we've got question wise is that all you've got in general today
1: that's, that's all I've got there. I always try to, to wrap up with one kind of thematic passage here uh, to, to recap the episode that we've done. And for me, when thinking about this rookie class, it, it is going to continue to be me saying, let's make sure we're not caught on that anchoring bias, that the, yeah. the initial outset of the season has colored our perspectives on some young players in a way that might be detrimental to looking at the full 82-game sample for this award, for anything as we're projecting out in the future, you want to see growth from players as rookies, not just that they come in and they play well instantly, but you want them to continue to get better. That's what projects better into the future. So let's make sure that we're not too tied to guys that were impressive or getting solid minutes out of the gates, continue to look for growth.
0: Totally agree with you on that front. Uh, I've, Watch. I watched a bunch of movies, like, over the weekend, randomly. None of them, like, super... I guess I watched Senior, the Robert Downey Sr. documentary on Netflix. That was very good, somewhat devastating at the end. Um, Watched a movie called Bull that came out in 2021. It has under a 1,000 reviews on Letterboxd, which is, like, crazy to me. This movie is really good. It's, like, one of the better like gangster revenge movies I've seen in like the last couple of decades. Uh, It's, it's very good. It is like incredibly uh, horrific and violent and like you have to have a stomach for it, but it was, it was, it was something special. I was, uh, I was pretty blown away by it. So if you're okay with like insane levels of violence and like some horrific shit happening, that's, that's a good one for you, bull.
1: I'll have to keep that in mind then. Yeah, uh, it's different than Bull Durham, but I'll uh, I'll make note of that.
0: Okay. Thank you all for listening. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe. Do everything you can to support the show. If you want to subscribe to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash game theory. That's the best link to go subscribe to. Later this week, I will have something. I might do like a trade deadline mailbag. Uh, set of questions. And then additionally, I'm also going to have a midseason, like all transfer list for college basketball that's going to go up. Actually, I actually have to write that this afternoon. So keep it locked here. You'll get all of that content later this week. Until next time, we'll talk soon.